If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and uh, turn to the book of Matthew and uh, go and turn to chapter five, if you will. Tonight, we're going to do something a little bit different, um, but we're going to start at the beginning for a second. But tonight, uh, we are finishing and landing the plane finally on the Sermon on the Mount series. We've, we've been walking through this thing for the past academic year since the beginning of the fall. And I've been very challenged, very encouraged by this and really diving into it. Um, it's really been uh, great for my heart and to see the kind of life that Jesus hope has been the same for you. But if you are coming, with it, um, coming in with us tonight and you haven't been a part of this, um, we are looking at Matthew 5 through 7, been walking through that this semester, looking at the life of a disciple, who they are, how they live, what they do. And the truth is that a disciple is someone who knows and follows Jesus and, and lives and enters into this life in the kingdom and, and lives this life of flourishing that he's described in Matthew 5 through 7. We've been walking through that this semester. But as we um, close out the series tonight, we're going to kind of zoom back a little bit and um, kind of take a little bit more in of what Jesus has been teaching us as a whole. And so what I want us to do tonight is something a little bit different um, since we are finishing out this series is I want us to hear the Sermon on the Mount uh, as it is. Uh, as a sermon. And so what we're going to do is we actually are going to read the entire sermon on the Mount tonight, um, which you're like, Kyle, we're going to be here forever. No, I'm going to share a lot less tonight. My message will be much shorter (laughs) because we're going to read a lot more scripture. But the reason we're doing this is not because I didn't have enough things to talk about and I decided to read more Bible. I could have given you, you guys know me, I could talk a lot, right? So I could give you plenty to think about from the last section. Um, But I want us to stop and um, or kind of slow down tonight as we finish this study and hear this as a, like we've mentioned throughout, a cohesive unit. This is a sermon, this is a message that Jesus is giving us about life in the kingdom and what it looks like to be a disciple. Because the main takeaway we're going to see tonight is going to be the fact that at the end of his message, Jesus commands us to, to obey and live out what he said. So I think it makes a lot of sense for us to slow down and hear this again in the way that Jesus said it. So with that, um, like I said, we're going to look at and read all of Matthew 5 through 7. And so if you want to read along in your Bible, that's awesome. Um, I'm in the ESV. We're going to have it on the screen as well if you're more of a person that likes to watch it um, come up on the screen. So either way um, is good with me. I think Joseph's still over there. Yeah, we got it. So, um, so we're going to read this, and, and this is going to be a, a decent bulk. It's going to take 12 to 13 minutes. I timed it. Okay. So um, to read through this. All right. So I, I want to make sure we had enough time tonight. Okay. Um, and then we'll go from there, and I'll give you some shorter thoughts about this last section um, that I hope are a great way to kind of tie a bow on this, okay? But as we read this, I want you to put yourself as much as you can in the position of a, um, of a Jewish person in the first century, as hard as that is for us. But um, you've heard about this Jesus, this guy who claims to be um, you know, this great teacher, prophet. Some say he's the Messiah come, and he begins to teach about life following him, life in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and you, you follow him outside the city, you sit down and maybe a, a, a pasture, he goes up on a hill, and this kind of, you know, is symbolizing that he's a teacher, he's about to speak some great words of authority, he's going to describe his mission and what he's inviting you to be a part of. And this is what he says, and this is the teaching that he gives us, and this is the teaching of what it means to be a disciple found in this sermon. And starting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, let's hear this together, all right? Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven For it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. 
and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise in the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others and know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites for that they disfigure their faces, that that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and what you will eat. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown to the oven, 
Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock and everyone on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When he come down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Let's take a moment and let's pray. But as we pray, I just want you to kind of let this word settle over you. It's a lot of words. That's the word of our Lord. This is the description of life in the kingdom. And I know that for all of us, there's different parts of that that are so challenging, that are are hard, but that are so beautiful. And this is the life that we've been designed for, uh, that we're invited into. So Father, I pray that you would Uh, Help us tonight 
as we close out this series, um, to not hear these words, many of which we've probably heard hundreds of times if we've been raised in the church, not to hear them and let them just kind of wash over us and then move on throughout the week. Although I know there's a lot of busy schedules in this room. But I pray that you would allow us to hear these words and, and to be like the wise person, the wise man that took these words, saw them as beautiful, saw them for what they are as hard and challenging, but saw them as the words of life, uh, the words of um, invitation into eternal life and a life of flourishing both now and forever, and that we would enter into them. We see this as the good life in a culture that gives us a thousand ways to express ourselves and and to identify ourselves and who we are and to find pleasure and fulfillment in our individuality. Lord, you call us to be formed and walk in the narrow way um, to find our identity in you. Because in that we find true life. We find real freedom. We find, we find real joy. So I pray that you would help us tonight to examine these words, examine our hearts, and, and walk away from this place. Uh, not with just a, a fleshly self-determination to obey these things, but with changed hearts that desire to live out this way live out this narrow path because of the heart change that's happened in us from an encounter with Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In this teaching, and what does Jesus ask us at the end of chapter seven? What does he ask us to do? He asks us, what do we can do with this, right? He doesn't give us like a, you know, a marching charge to go do something else, but he simply asks us to stop and to consider what are we going to do with these teachings, And he says, really, in the end, there's two kinds of people, right? There's those that hear the words of Jesus and actually obey them. And there's those that hear the words of Jesus and walk away and and not do them, right? Both of them, both the people hear the words, but only one of them does them and has a good foundation. And so he uses this illustration that you're probably really familiar with. There's a VBS song about it, right? The wise man built his house upon the rock, you know? Um, He has this illustration of two people building a foundation. All right, the wise man hears and does Jesus' words. And a storm comes and it, it presses in on every side of this house, but it survives the storm because it had a good foundation. With the person that doesn't do the words of Jesus, he just hears them, but doesn't actually follow them. It's called a foolish man, which fun fact, that word Greek, or the word in the Greek is the word moros, which word do you think, what word do you think we get in English from moros? Moron. So Jesus says the moron is the one that hears his words and doesn't do them. I hope we have no morons in the room tonight, all right? Um, He calls the the man a moron who hears his words, but doesn't do them. He builds his house on sand, and this storm comes and destroys his house, all right? So tonight, we're going to ask the question, what are we building our lives upon? If to have a strong foundation is to hear and obey the words of Jesus, what are we building our lives upon? So I want to point out four things about this illustration, and we have a new thing tonight. We have some slides on the side if you want to keep up with it um, on the screen as well. I got inspired tonight um, to be fancy, so be bougie in our, our last night. All right, so, okay. I know the hip, the hip words, all right? So, okay, so four things to keep up with and to see in this illustration is this. Number one, the foundation is hidden. Number two, the foundation's priority. Number three, the foundation's obedience, not agreement. Number four, the foundation is exposed by the storm. All right, let's walk through these and... Um, See what they may mean for us. Okay, number one, foundation's hidden. 
I think about a foundation in a house. Okay, you probably know what a foundation is. It's like the concrete slab. Most days we build stuff on for houses. It wasn't always uh, concrete back then. They hadn't invented concrete, I don't think, at that point. Don't quote me on that. If, uh, my civil engineering history is not great, okay? Um, but foundations are hidden. But think about a house, right? A house can look really good, but have a very messed up foundation, right? It's very possible um, for that to happen. But Jesus, it's the difference between, in this illustration, the foundation of this home and of our, and of our lives is the difference between life and death. Because we're assuming that the people that built the house are in the house when the storm comes, right? So they're surviving or not surviving the storm. He tells us the difference between a fragile life and an indestructible life is not the external stuff, but the internal, right? And we've seen this over and over again in the sermon, right? With this idea of being perfect, being complete, this external righteousness versus this internal righteousness. But Jesus reminds us here at the end, it's not about the externals of our life, right? But what our life is built upon that really matters. Because it, it's really easy to keep up appearances, right? We live in an age of appearances. It's, it's, it's all about social media, you know, our appearance to other people in terms of what we wear, you know, how we kind of present ourselves to other people. We live in an age and a culture of appearances. And it's easy, especially in the church, I think, sometimes to keep up a game of appearances and even be a religious person, but have a heart that is far away from Jesus and being devoted to him. And that kind of external stuff only gets us so far. And so Jesus says instead that an indestructible life is one that has a heart devoted to Jesus, both in word and in action. And we'll get to that in a second. But it's only when we have a heart devoted to Jesus, which only can happen when we repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus, that we can have this solid foundation, that we can stop um, living just for externals, that we can move on from this endless game of trying to appear good enough for other people and instead start building our lives on a strong and stable foundation that can last through anything in life. And through any storm. All right, that's number one. Number two, told you I was gonna be quicker tonight. All right, told you. All right, number two, the foundation is priority. All right, think about it. Um, anybody here ever like been around a home that's being built? Like anybody's family like built a house, you know, like and lived in it? Yeah. So like the, one of the first things you do when you build a house is to obviously get the ground level, but then build the foundation. It's kind of a big deal. Okay, and you may have heard about Ridgecrest South and the the legendary foundation problems that that place has, which, by the way, I can't verify that. Nothing I've seen online says that really happened. But rumor is Ridgecrest South, they forgot to include the cars in the way to the the parking deck. So the thing is actually settling in the ground. And in a few years, we're going to have to tear it down. That may not be true, though. I may be lying to you because nothing on Google can verify it. So, um, but in that case, (laughs) the foundation is a significant thing that got messed up. And there's a lot of money that probably you guys are gonna have to pay for um, to, to tear that building down and rebuild it, all right? It was a costly mistake. Probably my tuition is still getting put in there somewhere, okay? Um, but here's the deal, like, in this illustration, why would someone decide to build a house on sand? The civil engineers in the room know that sand makes a terrible foundation. It, it, it's really shifty, shifting sand, right? It moves around, doesn't handle water very well. Right? It, it's not a great foundation. You need a sand clay mix, all right, in the civil engineers, sand clay base mix, okay, if you care to know. But that's what you build your foundation on and not sand. So why would this guy in this picture decide sand would be the best thing to build on? Well, I think two easy reasons are, number one, it was cheaper and it was more convenient. All right, it was really easy to build your foundation on sand because it's probably cheaper. It's cheaper today, I know. I'm sure it was back then. But also it was more convenient because it probably was more readily available than having to go and like carve out rock or bring in some rock. Because it says the rock, by the way, which always makes me think of like Dwayne Johnson having a house built on top of him. But like, um, but when it says the rock, it means like rock. It doesn't mean they took a boulder and built a house on it, okay? It means they just built it on rock, Okay. You're never going to forget that now when you read that, okay? Um, But the point here is this. 
is that building the right, being a house on the right foundation, it takes energy, it takes intentionality, it takes sacrifice, it takes effort, it takes a cost, right? Both in time and money in this picture to have the right foundation. So I think for us, what this means is this, is that for us to have the right foundation in life and to not to get this wrong, is that we have to make a conscious decision about what's gonna be priority in our lives. And that takes work. Because like we talked about last week, following Jesus costs us a whole bunch, right? We have to die to ourselves, right? We have to take up our cross and follow Jesus. It's not easy to follow Christ, but it's worth it. But it costs. And the, and the thing is, is that if you don't choose your life's foundation, if you don't choose your life direction, I can guarantee you someone will choose it for you or something will choose it for you in life. Right? Everyone has a life direction, a life foundation, but not everyone chooses it and they have it chose for them. And many, many people will get to the end of life or get to a storm in life and begin to realize they made a really poor choice about what they were going to build their life upon. Because we can easily build our lives on things like money, success, marriage, kids, pleasure, all kinds of stuff. Those are good things, by the way. They're not wrong at all. But if we make those our foundation, we take good things and begin to try to make them God things. We begin to find that they make terrible foundations, especially when a storm hits. So we also have to choose and make a priority what our foundation is going to be, what our life direction is going to be. Because Jesus tells us that there's only one right option for our foundation. It's knowing and obeying the words of Jesus. All right. So number three, we see that the foundation is obedience, not agreement. Um, If you go back and look in the Sermon on the Mount, you see this a lot, but um, Jesus uses the word or the verb to do 22 times in the Sermon on the Mount. Our English translations kind of cover it up with different words, but the Greek word poeo, um, which means to do, is used 22 times in the Sermon on the Mount. And so there's a very bold focus in the sermon, not just of hearing Jesus's words, but doing them and actually living them out. And this echoes much of what we hear in the Bible, but I think a great illustration of this is in James chapter one and two. We're gonna have them on the screen too. But James one twenty two says this. It says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And you skip down into James chapter two, verses 14 through 19. James says this. He says, what good, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. It's a challenging verse to know that it's not about just intellectual knowledge that saves us and expresses our faith. Even the demons believe God is exactly who he is, but they don't respond to him in faith and obedience. And they're enemies of God. I love the way that John Stott says it. Um, He wrote a great commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. John Stott said it this way. He said, the question is not whether we say nice, polite, orthodox, enthusiastic things to or about Jesus nor whether we hear his words, listening, studying, pondering, and memorizing until our minds are stuffed with his teaching, but whether we do what we say and do what we know. In other words, whether the lordship of Jesus, which we profess, is one of our life's major realities. 
And that challenged me to think, is the words of Jesus, are the words of Jesus and following him, is that one of our life's major realities? Is that one of my life's major realities that I seek to do and to follow? Because, you know, many of us, myself included, we've grown up in the church and we know so many of these things and heard them so many times. We know all the things about Jesus and it's great to know the Bible. It's great to have study scripture and be able to quote lots of things and sing awesome VBS songs about the truths of, of the gospel, things like that. That's fantastic. We, many of us have benefited from that. I know I have. But one danger about knowing all this information, especially being raised in it, is that we can become in many ways inoculated or, or vaccinated with Jesus to where we know just enough of the gospel to keep us away from really knowing Jesus because we know enough to kind of say, yeah, I know that stuff. I know the ABCs. I've done that. I prayed the prayer. I've got baptized. But not really wrestle with the truth of what Jesus says, the truth of what it means to follow him. And we let religion keep us away from really following and knowing Jesus. And I know in my life that that was true. It took me a while to figure out what it really meant to follow Jesus versus just knowing the information and agreeing to it with, with my words, but not denying it with my life and not really submitting to him. But that's how Jesus differentiates between those that really know him and those they don't. It's those that obey him and seek out to live this kind of life. Because it's like we said last week, it's not our obedience that saves us, but our obedience gives evidence that we know Christ, all right? Because most of us in the church today, I believe, don't need more information, although information is good. I'm all about Bible study and theology. But most of us don't need more information about Jesus and about the Bible. We need to, we need to start to live out and put into practice the stuff that we already know. All right? I think it's one of the greatest needs in the church today is to stop thinking like more information is going to make us better disciples. Instead, it's to live out the stuff that Jesus has already shown us and that we know. All right? Information is great, and there may be people in here that need to know more about the Bible to follow Jesus better. And we grow in our walk with Christ by knowing more, but it can't end with information. You get me? It can't end with knowledge. It has to be more than that. Okay? So we have to take an honest look at our lives and asking, are we really seeking to obey Jesus, to lay our lives before him and walk out this life? Or are we simply just building up information that in the end is probably going to condemn us more than it's going to do anything else? All right. Number four, the foundation is exposed by the storm. We see this in this illustration. The storm comes in, it presses down on the roof and the walls and the, and the foundation, and it destroys the moron's house. But the guy, the wise man, his house is saved. And so in this story, we got to imagine that things probably seemed really fine in this illustration with the two houses. Like before the storm came, who knows, the, the fool's house may have looked even better than the wise man's house. He may have had some, some nice curtains and shades and a cool porch and stuff, you know, I don't know. But like his house may look better, but when the storm came, it exposed it for what it was and the truth was seen. But one thing to notice in this is that in this illustration, Jesus makes it clear that knowing him, being a disciple, it in no way keeps us away from the storms in life. Like following Jesus in no way means that we're going to avoid suffering in life. Jesus makes it clear that both people who know him and follow him and those that don't, they both go through storms. They both experience suffering in life. Because we all face storms in different ways. I mean, even coming to college for some of you may have been a storm in and of itself and just a big storm with many storms in it. In it. Um, but we all face storms in different ways in terms of losing people and tragedy and depression and disappointment and failure. These are all part of living in a broken world. And we all experience this stuff. But really what these things end up doing for a Christian is exposing our lives and helping us really grasp more onto Jesus. But for those that don't know Christ, it exposes the faulty foundation of our life and really what we're making ultimate. And if we have a bad foundation, when a storm comes, what happens? Our life falls apart, right? 
we, we come to the end of our rope, we have no idea what to do. And, and this idolatry in our hearts is exposed. But if we have the right foundation, it can act as an anchor to, um, with, um, to sustain us, not withstand us, to sustain us within the storms of life. It doesn't mean we don't struggle. It doesn't mean we don't go through storms, but we have this anchor that can sustain us in these storms. But one more thing to know about that is that in biblical language and in biblical terminology, usually storms weren't meant to associate like the suffering we experience in life. We talk, we talk about the storms of life and stuff, but in biblical language, storms are normally meant to talk about the judgment of God. You can go back and look in the Old Testament. There's lots of examples of that. So ultimately what Jesus is telling us is that having the right foundation is gonna help us withstand the storm of God's judgment, but in, you know, of standing before God and being judged by him. So what he's telling us is this, is that it's only when we have a real relationship with Jesus that's expressed in our obedience to him that we can have confidence in standing before God one day. It's only in knowing him that we can have that confidence because then our life won't be built on our own works, you know, our own whatever, but instead it'll be based on and built on the perfection of Jesus in our place, lived for us, all right? So let's do this. Before we close up tonight, I want to look at um, these last couple of verses in Matthew 7, the beginning of 8, and, uh, and then we'll wrap up, okay? As we begin to kind of tie a bow on this. So uh, look back with me, if you will, Matthew 7, 28 through verse 1 of chapter 8. Because we read a lot a second ago. I want us to look at this again. So this is what, how the Sermon on the Mount closes. It says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So two things to notice about this as we close. Is number one, Jesus speaks to us with the full authority of God, and he speaks to us as the true lawgiver. So notice first off, he speaks with the full authority of God. That, that the scribes, if you think about it, they taught on the authority of others. Like for me, when I teach this or on a Sunday morning, I'm not teaching them on authority. I'm teaching on the authority of the Bible. I'm also teaching on the authority of guys way smarter than me that have written commentaries that I study to help. Lots, anything you hear that probably sounds really good is probably not from me. It's probably from a book I read and I shared with you, all right? Um, but I don't teach on my own authority. And that's how the scribes were these days. They taught on the authority of the law, on the authority of something else. But Jesus comes in and what does he say? I, I tried to accident for you a bunch in the sermon. You may have heard it. Jesus said, you've heard this said, but I say to you this. Did you notice that? Over and over again, it's like, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And we get this idea that when Jesus references the law, He's showing that he has the authority to rightly interpret it and show exactly what it's meant to do. And in that, he's showing us that really Jesus is something different. He's not just another teacher. He's not another scribe, but that he's God himself come to show us what it really means to know God, what it really means to live this life of flourishing. And if you fast forward in the book of Matthew, you see that there's two responses to this. Because you see in the crowds here at the end of chapter seven, everyone's astonished, right? They're like, man, this Jesus guy, he's an amazing teacher. He teaches with authority. He's awesome. And a ton of people follow him right there at the, end, the beginning of chapter eight. Tons of people follow him. But what happens not long after that? He begins to say some pretty hard things as if he hadn't already said enough, but he begins to say some very hard things. He begins to lay out the cost of really following him. And what happens? People begin to fall away. More and more people are like, this is too hard. I thought you were gonna be the Messiah. I thought the Messiah was gonna make my life easier, right? You're gonna defeat Rome and make my life more comfortable. But no, you're asking me to lay down my life for you? Like, I'm not sure about this. And people begin to, to walk away and fall away. And so really, Jesus begins to divide people up in these two groups. And for us, he divides us up into two people. People that see the authority of Jesus and humbly submit their lives to him. And people that see the authority of Jesus and say, you know what? I'm not really about that. That's too costly. It's too hard. 
I prefer to have my little life of comfort, my little life of satisfaction in my own stuff, in my own little kingdom. I don't really want this kingdom of God. And in the end, that life leads to destruction, right? It's the wide way. It's the broad way that leads to destruction. Last thing, Jesus speaks to us as the true lawgiver because we see him coming down from the mountain and these crowds follow him. And that's meant to help us, um, if we're reading the text well, to remind ourselves of Moses. Remember in Ten Commandments, he goes up on the mountain. He receives the Ten Commandments. He comes back down the mountain. From, he, comes, he meets God in the mountain, comes back down. So in this, this is meant to remind us that Jesus, and really show us that Jesus is not just another Moses. He's not just another lawgiver. He is the better Moses. He's the new Moses who's the giver of the true law. He's the true teacher and the true decider of truth. He's not just a, a teacher giving good advice. He doesn't give us that option. He's the teacher of and showing us the way to eternal life. He's showing us how everything in the Bible, including the law itself, finds its fulfillment in him. And really what he's doing is he's showing us a new way to be human. He's showing us a new way into a life of flourishing, all right? He's showing us a new way to be human. And that's why for, for Christians, the way that we live is that the whole life of a disciple is to seek to learn and live like Jesus, to learn from Jesus and to live like him because he invites us into this full and flourishing life. It's hard, but he invites us into it. So we're gonna close up with two more things. First is this great quote on that from Dallas Willard. I love this. He wrote a great book um, on the Sermon on the Mount, but he says this near the end of the book. He says, as a disciple of Jesus, I am with him by choice and by grace, learning from him how to live in the kingdom of God, how to live within the range of God's effective will, his life flowing through mine. Get this, I love this quote. I am learning to live my life as he would live my life if he were I. I am not necessarily learning to do everything he did, but I am learning how to do everything I do in the manner that he did all that he did, right? It's like the old school WWJD bracelets in some way, you know, there's a lot of truth in there, even though it's cheesy, right? But to be a disciple of Jesus is to take the way he lived his life and not become, you know, a, a rabbi teacher back in the first century and have an awesome beard and long hair, but instead to take the life of Jesus, the way he lived his life, the priorities he placed in the kingdom and serving others and loving and laying down his life, preaching the gospel, and making that the way we live our life today. Because in the end, Jesus really says, says this to us. He says that to know him is to obey him, right? There's this direct connection between knowing and obeying Jesus, that our knowledge and personal relationship with him is expressed and reflected in obeying him. But the only way to obey him is to know him and be changed by him. But yet our knowledge will then directly as fruit lead to that obedience, all right? So for us, as we finish out this series, I wanna challenge you, like, if you claim to be a Christian in here and you claim to know Jesus, how is that leading you to obedience? If Jesus says that the wise person is the one that takes his teachings, this life of discipleship, and obeys it and lives it out, how are you doing that? Are you living your life on a faulty foundation where Jesus would call you a moron because you're living your life wastefully where it's gonna lead to destruction? Or are you living your life taking the words of Jesus, this beautiful picture of what the good life really is, and are you taking it to heart? and sing it to obey it. If you don't know Jesus and you wanna um, begin a relationship with him, I'd love to talk to you more about that and what the gospel is if you have any questions. Um, during the discussion time tonight, I'll be over there near the table, or I'll, I might be over here even at this table, but I'll be in this area. Um, feel free to talk to me. If you wanna talk even afterward, I'd love to talk to you more about that. If you have any questions, please let me know. Um, but as we wrap up tonight, we're gonna have three questions that we're gonna discuss. And so I wanna pray for us and then give you guys some time to discuss at your tables about 10, 15 minutes, okay? 
All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for uh, the power of it and how we've been walking through it this year and how I know I've been so challenged to see the, that so much of the Bible is, is not just a list of do's and don'ts and commandments and rules that may seem so dry and boring and, and, and restrictive, but that, Lord, um, the life you invite us into and the life of following Jesus, it's the way that we were designed to live. It's a true life of freedom and joy and flourishing and goodness. And our sin wants to push back against that and doubt that. And, and like even the beginning in Genesis 3, where we're tempted to deny the goodness of God and to deny your goodness and to think you're, you're lying to us. Lord, we're tempted with that today, but instead we want to lean into and see that this life that Christ is describing is, is the good life. It's the life we're meant to live. And we want to enter into that. So I pray for anyone in here, Lord, that doesn't know you, that hasn't even entered into a relationship with you through the gospel, through repenting and believing in Christ, that tonight would be a night that they really get serious about that. Um, I, but I pray for the believers in this room, that we would see these words, um, this depiction of life in the kingdom, and that we would see it as beautiful. Uh, we would see it as something um, that we're invited into, Lord. Not that it doesn't cost, not that it doesn't involve persecution and hardship, but it's a, the good life. It's a life of flourishing and fullness that offers us so much more than anything our culture, um, that our society could offer today. So I ask that you would guide us in our discussion. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.